1208, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So glad to have you with us. Okay, Eric Bilstadt, ready to drink the Kool-Aid here? We, sure. Uh, all right. So, of course, we're, we're, we're big into sports around here, and our, our very own Jay Swergy, who does a lot of stuff with sports and does just a great job with that, he's got a posting up at WTMJ.com. He, he's run the odds. Here, here's, here's what they, they say based on a New York Times self-service playoff simulator. Okay? That, that's it. All right. So the odds are that if the Green Bay Packers win their remaining five games, now that, that's it, they got to win their remaining five games, including beating Chicago in Chicago on the road. And by the way, the Packers haven't won a road game this year. But if they win their remaining five games and run the table, the odds are that if they end up, that would mean they finish 9-6-1, and one, and the odds are they have an 83% chance of making the playoffs. Hey, 83% chance. <laughs> 83% chance hmm. of, of making the playoffs. Right. right now, though, <laughs> right now, because, I mean, that, that assumes that they're going to win five games in a, in a row. And I think for a lot of people who aren't completely and totally, you know, under the table from drinking the Kool-Aid, a lot of people look at the Packers and say they are a hot mess. And what are the chances that they're going to win five games in, in a row? At the moment, their current odds are 12% to make it, less than one in, in eight. So, you know, you, you, I mean, but, but again, th- this is it for Packers fans who think that there's this, this switch that somehow is going to be thrown. thrown If they win five in a row, and that says 83% well, chance. I think part of that is because if you look at all of the games remaining for every team, the Packers have, if not the easiest, the second easiest schedule the rest of the way. So if there is a team that could potentially win out, they could more so than, say, the Vikings or somebody else. At the same time, they're 4-6-1. and one. My guess is there's a lot of teams looking at the Packers and saying, this is an easy game for us to play. I mean, it's not like they've been a juggernaut this year, but I understand I'm I'm trying not to be the Debbie Downer here, but um, what, what really needs to happen is they need to win all five games in a row, and Seattle needs to lose two. That's, mm, and then they kind of sneak into the playoffs. I think that's kind of what really has to happen. But in any event, if you are despondent after the loss last week, and then the loss three weeks ago, and the loss four weeks ago, and the six road losses, and the tie against Minnesota in week two. There still is mathematical chance. Starts off with them winning all five games. So again, we, we want to be optimistic that those are what the numbers are. Hey, there is a story out there that it's one of these things that if if the opposite would have happened, it would have been a huge, huge story. But because what happened happened. You hear almost nothing about it. Yesterday, there was a runoff in Mississippi to decide who the U.S. senator from Mississippi would be. What had happened, you might recall this, is on election night, there was Mississippi has what is known as, as a jungle primary. And what happened is on election night in early November, you had all the different candidates who want to run, they run. So that means you, you you don't have, like we have in Wisconsin, where in August there is a primary to determine who the Republican candidate is and who the Democrat candidate is. What happens in Mississippi is anybody that wants to run and can get the qualifying signatures, they, they run and they're on the ballot. And what happens is if one candidate gets 50% of the vote plus one, they get elected. If not, if somebody doesn't get 50% of the vote plus one, what happens is the top two candidates end up in a runoff. Well, in early November, you had Mississippi is a very, very Republican state. You had two strong Republican candidates and one very strong Democrat candidate. And the two Republican candidates kind of carved up the, the vote. 
One got 40-some percent. One got, I think, 27 percent or something like that. But the fact that there were two strong Republican candidates stopped anyone from getting 50 percent plus one. So there was a runoff yesterday. Um, Republican Senator Cindy Hyde-Smith, who had been appointed by President Trump earlier in the year, she was running against Mike Espy, who was the Secretary of Agriculture under uh, Barack Obama. Normally, this should have and would have been an easy Republican win. The race got a bit contentious because, as we've talked about on the program, a few weeks ago, um, Hyde Smith, the Republican, was accused of being racist because she was at some event and she was thanking the guy that invited her and talking about how much she liked him. And she said something, hey, if, if so-and-so invited me to a public hanging, I'd show up there. And somehow that turned out into, oh, she's got to be incredibly racist. She's endorsing public hangings or lynching. It, it really, at least in my opinion, was a complete example of, of how you do get into the fake news thing. And what happened is I think the mainstream media played into the, the Democrats' allegations against her. In any event, some people thought that maybe this comment was going to ultimately cost her the election. Well, the runoff was yesterday. And I guarantee you, if she would have lost, you would have heard this would have been the screaming headlines. Oh, here's another repudiation. Well, it, she didn't lose. She she won, and she won relatively handily, I think, by seven, eight points at the end. So the bottom line is election 2018 is finally over and the final count in the U.S. Senate is the Republicans ended up picking up two seats, now 53-47. That is important because even though Republicans lost the House of Representatives, it is the Senate that has the advise and consent function. And so from the perspective of confirming federal circuit court judges, federal appellate judges, and if there is another opening on the U.S. Supreme Court over the next two years, that means the Republicans do have a, a working majority with which they could do it. Before, if you were a member with Judge Kavanaugh, Republicans only had 51 votes. So you, you couldn't lose more than one Republican and still be able to get the person confirmed. Now, now you've got 53, so it's not like everybody has to vote. You could lose one or two for whatever reason and still be able to get a confirmation. So it was a significant election. If it had gone the other way, you would have heard a lot more about it. All right, let us switch gears. Want to get started. By the way, we are, as we almost always do, live streaming the first couple segments of the program. You can go to Facebook.com slash 620WTMJ and watch us as we go about our business. Let me back into this topic. President Trump, before he was President Trump, was Donald Trump, real estate developer, hotel developer, businessman. All right. One of the investments that Donald Trump made was in Atlantic City. And if you remember, there was a time in the 80s and 90s, 90s in particular, where Atlantic City, this was going to be we, we were going to bring in gambling and gambling was going to turn around Atlantic City. And Atlantic City was going to be essentially Las Vegas East. Atlantic City was a resort town um, that had fallen on, on hard times. Well, so you had this big rush to gambling, and Donald Trump was one of the, the first people in with both feet. Gambling did not work out for Atlantic City. Even when the casinos were there, there were there was almost no spillover. I can remember going to Atlantic City a couple times, and you'd have all the big glitzy casinos on the boardwalk, and then you'd walk three blocks away, and you'd just be struck by the incredible levels of poverty and things that were there. Almost no spillover. In any event, the, the gambling boom really did not work out. And one of the, the, the hotels that President Trump owned – um, now I think they're all shuttered. I, I think the, he ended up; they all end up going into bankruptcy at one point in time or another. 
during this time when things were going downhill, one of the things that Donald Trump, developer, did, owner, was because the casinos weren't making enough money, they were losing money, etc., one of the first things that they did was they started laying off people. You know, we've got this entire workforce here, but there's not enough people coming. There's not enough people that are staying at the hotels. There's not enough people gambling. There's not enough people, you know, eating at the restaurants. So we don't need everybody. So they started laying off people. And ultimately, they ended up, you know, closing down casinos because they weren't making money. Now, I don't fault Donald Trump, businessman, for this. This is something that makes sense. You're not doing well. You're not producing. So what do you end up doing? Well, all right, one of the first things you do is if, if we're, if we've got these hotels and the hotels have an occupancy of a thousand rooms and we're, we're only able to sell 500 of those rooms or whatever the number is. Well, all right. Why, why are we hiring maids to clean, for example, the other 500? You know, you, you lay those people off. That's what business people do, which brings me to General Motors. And that's where we're going to start our discussion in just a moment. Hang around. 1217, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Once again, we are live, facebook.com slash 620 WTMJ. Check that out as well. 1220, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. All right, you may remember General Motors, when it was on the verge of bankruptcy back in 2009, um, it had a government-led bankruptcy restructuring. It was a Treasury Department bailout that led to, uh, again, GM being rescued. Estimates were the taxpayers lost, the Treasury lost about $11 billion back in 2009 on, on this bailout. All right, what General Motors announced earlier this week, late last week, is they were going to be closing various plants in North America. The plants are not profitable. The plants, by and large, made midsize and small cars and some electric cars. And the problem is nobody's buying those cars. That, that's just the problem. The plants are not profitable because they are not making vehicles that people want. And what General Motors has said is, hey, look, we're, we're trying to stay afloat. So, you know, what, what we're going to do, we're not going to continue to run plants producing automobiles that nobody is is buying. So we're going to be eliminating 15% of our salaried workforce in North America, and we're going to stop production at five plants that employ about 6,700 workers, including one that's been around forever in, in Ohio. And GM says we're going to take the money we save with, with that, and what we're going to try to do is we're going to invest it into some of our more profitable areas because people are buying trucks, um, we're going to work on the self-driving cars. We're going to try to be future-oriented, but we're, we're not just going to be able to continue producing cars that people aren't going to buy. And, you know, we've discussed this as to why people aren't buying cars, and I think we did it as a topic yesterday. Why are, why are they switching to, you know, the SUVs or the crossover vehicles or the trucks? But it is just the reality. For a lot of reasons, a lot of these brands, a lot of these types of vehicles that they're making are not successful. So they're saying, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to shift. And part of that means we're closing plants because we've got excess production capacity for things that people are not buying. Well, President Trump has angrily weighed into that. He's very, very upset that GM might be closing plants that are making cars that people are not buying. And he's threatened that, hey, if if GM actually does this, what I'm going to do is I'm going to cut federal extension. I'm right now 
Right now, there is a $7,500 tax credit that people get if they buy an electric vehicle. And it, it gets a little bit complicated, but that that credit is going to need to be extended. And President Trump is saying, no, we're, we're, you know, if they continue to go ahead and they shut these plants, we're not going to do that. And we're going to look at other ways to try to punish this company. Right. Our number, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Is President Trump right to threaten General Motors? Now, there's no question. General Motors was one of many U.S. companies that were too big to fail. Got the bailout back in 2008. Got the bailout back in 2009. Used that money to stay afloat. But now in 2018, they have excess capacity. They have plants that are making vehicles and are designed to make vehicles that people are not buying. So is GM the bad guy for saying, hey, we, we've got to close some plants and we've got to lay these these off? And is President Trump right to threaten them saying, look, if you go ahead and do this, well, we're going to pull more incentives. We're going to like take away taxpayer incentives from you, which it would seem to me then, all right, if it makes it more difficult for people to buy electric vehicles that they're not really buying now, you pull back the tax incentives, you completely and totally kill that market. 414-799-1620, Let's start with Dustin in New Berlin. Dustin, good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. How are you doing? Real well, thank you. What do you think? Um, so you, I, I don't agree with your analogy that uh, you know the Trump Hotel situation um, kind of equates to uh, this issue with GM. Um, you know, frankly, the, the Trump Hotels were not federally subsidized with the millions and millions of dollars that taxpayers paid in to keep um, you know, the American uh, car manufacturers afloat. Um, well, so what's GM I, supposed to do? You've, you've got plants that are producing vehicles that nobody is buying. So do they just I, keep making the cars that nobody's buying? No, I, I agree that they have to make a business decision. But where I disagree is that they are keeping plants open abroad where those jobs could have been maintained in america mm-hmm. um and i in whether you know trump has any sort of say or or um you know uh, sway if you will um I, i'm glad that i have a president right now who's trying to stand up for the american workforce mm-hmm. um when they're you know a, a company was subsidized the way gm was um but they're keeping you know foreign company uh, uh foreign uh based plants alive while they're shutting down American workers. Well, they say that they're going to be closing a couple of the foreign plants as well. But l- let me let me ask you this then. Let us assume, just, just for the sake of argument, that you've got a, a plant, for example, in China that's making cars that you are, that they're selling to the China population. You would say that you would shut that plant down, make the cars in the U.S., and then ship them to China? No, not necessarily. I mean, it obviously has to make business sense. Yeah. What I think the the issue is, and it might be more complicated than you know the time I have on the phone here with you, but you know based on you know what the taxes and, and mm-hmm. other regulations in the United States have to do with it, but it has to make business sense. But if if it's only based on um, you know trying to you know cut profit, um, they're still profitable, um, and they were they were propped up by the the federal oh, tax dollars. Oh, oh, there's no question about it. No, thanks. There's, there's no question. I mean, GM together, I mean, GM was one of the big beneficiaries of, of the Obama-era bailout. There, there's just no question uh, about it. And the Bush-era bailout as well. That That's what kept them afloat. But I guess the question becomes, moving forward, you know, you're, you're talking about nine or ten years later. 
they have been produced, they are producing a product. They have factories that are geared to produce products that people are, are not buying. What, what, what are you supposed to do with that? And I guess the other thing that I need people to, th- you need to think about is, let's say the president goes ahead with this. And let's say, all right, the president decides I'm going to push Congress to crack down on or not extend or somehow limit this credit people get on the taxes for buying electric vehicles. All right. So you, you pull that back. Well, what's that going to do? Well, doesn't it make it even more difficult for GM to sell electric vehicles? And if that's the case, <laughs> you know, don't don't you potentially lead to more layoffs down the road? 414-799-1620. Let's talk to Carrie in Mequon. Carrie, good afternoon. Good afternoon. What do you think? Uh, well, I agree with President Trump, uh, only in the sense that uh, the other side is missing the fact that the cars that are still being made in Mexico, paying $3 an hour to the employees down there, are still wanted and being purchased, and it would take a relatively simple retrofit on the Ohio plants to bring those cars up here and make them in the United States. So what you think he, what you think GM should have done is instead of closing these plants, spend the money, retrofit it, and then close the foreign plants? Absolutely. Okay. Um, how far how far would you carry that? What about the, because they, they make a lot of plants, a lot of cars overseas as well. If they're making cars, the example I asked the last caller, you're making cars for the China market. Should you close the China plant and then make the cars here and then ship them over to China? No, I don't. I I don't think that I would agree with that because, like the last caller said, you it has to make right financial sense and to ship it back and forth like that. But we're talking about just south of the border here in Mexico, mm-hmm. and clearly it's. Three dollars an hour to those factory workers versus twenty-four, right. twenty-five dollars an hour to right. Uh, you know, no, no, the, no. You're right. Well, there's no question. I mean, what's going on here is, is you have first of all these, these plants are making products that people aren't buying, and your your labor costs are a lot higher in the U.S. You put these all together, and, and that's what it's here. I guess here here's the bottom line, though. I, I think I think threatening U.S. businesses is is almost always going to turn out to be counterproductive. The Wall Street Journal has a, a real interesting article, an editorial here today, talking about how, you know, the the bottom line is if you want U.S. companies to survive and to thrive, you've got to allow them to make business decisions that make sense. And this is a business decision that makes sense. And when the government threatens additional sanctions on top of that, the concern becomes, all right, what is this going to ultimately do to the business? Just saying. 1229, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 1237, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ, a top-tier Milwaukee restaurant, adds heated igloos to the menu. Is it a passing fad, or is it the beginning of a trend? John McCure takes a look. Tune in, 3.30 today on Wisconsin's Afternoon News. Jordan, who is producing the show today while Gru is doing some other duty as a sign. Now he's working, he's just doing something else. Yet yesterday, one of the topics we talked about is after in the aftermath of our, our Christmas show that was, was Monday night, one of the things that struck me was driving around the downtown area trying to find parking. And I know a number of you felt that same way. I think Pfizer Forum is absolutely tremendous. The night we were doing the our, our Christmas show at Turner Hall, 
happened to coincide with the WWE wrestling event that was sold out at, at Pfizer Forum. And as I was driving around the immediate area, I was telling these stories. I, I mean, the, the cheapest parking that you could find in the immediate vicinity was 30 bucks. A lot of the places were 40 bucks. And then as you got further and further away, you know, I, I found a place that was $20. But it was still, it was kind of like $20. And my point is, I'm a free enterprise guy. I, I am. I get the whole supply and demand thing. But I think whether it's the Bucks or the city, if you want to really grow this area, you need to get some control on what I think is just profiteering and price gouging when it comes to these events. And so I was just talking about that, and we were having a discussion about you know how people deal with this. And I and I recognize that the solution is nobody makes you pay forty or thirty dollars to park. And if you don't mind walking a half a mile or three quarters of a mile or a mile, all right, well you you can find cheaper parking. But my question was, is that really customer-friendly if we're trying to grow that area? So in any event, I, I was at the Marquette game last night. That season tickets to Marquette game. My wife and I went there, and it was it was a little bit different because it was they, they were playing some spud team, and they ended up winning by 30 points, and it was a cold Tuesday night in December after the holidays, and the game wasn't particularly well attended. I don't know what the announced attendance was, but lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of season ticket holders just just decided not to show up. But, I mean, I was driving around the area, and again, I I typically have a place I park and I take a shuttle over, so it it doesn't cost me anything, and that's what we ended up doing last night. But I did see a number of the prices, you know, went down to 20 bucks and all. But the interesting thing was, so I'm sitting in my seats, I counted at least six people who came up to me and who heard that segment yesterday and were telling me, you're absolutely right about parking. And what we've decided to do is it's not that we're not going to start comp stop coming, but we are parking. We walked a mile. We walked three quarters of a mile. That, that's what they're doing to avoid being gouged by the profiteering that goes on in, in parking. And I, I appreciate that. That's how people are responding. And we in Wisconsin and in general and southeastern Wisconsin in particular, we're kind of frugal folks. So, I mean, I understand that's how people are doing it. But one person after another coming up saying, we heard that segment. You're absolutely right. We're not going to pay 30 or $40 to park. Now, again, last night I saw it at 20 because there apparently I don't think was as much demand. But but still, I, I go back to my basic premise. If you want a facility that was built with million in taxpayer money. If you want that to succeed, if you want people to feel good about coming down to the area, maybe one of the things that you can do is try to put some controls on some of the parking costs so people don't feel like they're being completely and totally ripped off when they go down to the area. And yes, before you text me, I know nobody says that you have to park in the lot that costs you $30 or the structure that's going to cost you 30 or 40 bucks. I understand nobody holds a gun to your head and says that, but at the same time, if you're coming down there with a family, I don't know, should you really have to walk half a mile or something with kids in the cold in order to, you know, go attend the event. Just saying. All right. Foxconn. Very, very controversial. Now, I, I have argued that if this were an initiative that had been advanced eight years ago when Jim Doyle was the governor, a number of the people on the left who criticized it would have been, you know, supporting it vociferously. I, I've, I've made that argument. It was Foxconn essentially approved with almost no Democratic support. It was a Republican 
initiative. I think there were maybe two Democrats in the assembly from the area who voted for it. I'm not sure if anybody voted for it in the state Senate. But the contracts have been signed. Ground has been broken on on Foxconn. Well, all right, here's the latest developments. You have a number of, of groups that are challenging some of the things that were was done by the DNR in order to facilitate the Foxconn operation. And undoubtedly, that stuff is going into court. You also have a number of individuals who believe that Foxconn and some of the things that were done in the approval process were, in fact, illegal. And there's, again, there's some lawyers out there who are advancing these theories that we could, you know, if Foxconn were sued, maybe, just maybe, you could find a, a judge or a court somewhere that would agree that the contract should be subject to being voided because of, again, this error, that error, whatever. All right. So uh, is that is that the case or not? I, I don't know. But here's the interesting question. A number of people on the left are already coming forward and suggesting that incoming governor Tony Evers, who's been very, very ambivalent about Foxconn, and the incoming Democrat Attorney General, Josh Call, could could give a lot of weight to any lawsuit by saying, all right, new sheriffs in town, figuratively speaking, and what we're going to do is we are going to agree with, for example, some of these people who were saying this was illegal or that was illegal or some of the potential you know, suits against the DNR claiming that procedures were shortcutted. We could have the state of Wisconsin essentially sign on with some of these groups, and we could join in an effort to try to have the contracts voided. Would that ultimately succeed? I I don't know. But there's no doubt that if you had the state of Wisconsin, which suddenly took a different position and said, you know, all this stuff that we did before, now we think it was against the law, at least that's our current interpretation, so we're going to join with these other entities that might be suing, that could be, well, a significant you-know-what in the punch bowl. Would it ultimately stop, stop Foxconn? I don't know. I, I don't know, but it could certainly delay things for a while. Let's open up the phone lines. Our number, 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Here's the very real question that Governor-elect Tony Evers faces and the uh, Governor, the Attorney General-elect faces, and that is... Should they try to use litigation to stop Foxconn or should it be just green light? We've already agreed to this. Ground has been broken. We want to continue with this. Now, again, keep in mind, Foxconn was approved with almost no support from Democrats in the state legislature. And I don't want to over dramatize this. I don't want to suggest that even if Evers and Call decided that they want to try to bring the state of Wisconsin down on the side of people trying to stop Foxconn, that it would necessarily succeed, but it would be a significant move. Let's talk about policy. Should we try to stop Foxconn? Was Foxconn a bad deal, or do you want to let it play out and see where it goes? 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I'll tell you where I come down on this, and we'll discuss in just a minute. If you're on the line, please hold on. What should be the future of Foxconn moving forward? I know everybody thought it was a done deal. That's not necessarily the case. 1245, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 
1248, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Now, look, I don't think the incoming governor could, could in and of himself stop the Foxconn project, but he could certainly throw a cog into the works by um, essentially saying, hey, we're going to have the state of Wisconsin, and the attorney general is going to side with some of these people who are getting ready to sue saying Foxconn, the procedures weren't right, or et cetera, et cetera. If you would have the state of Wisconsin come down on that side, it would be, what's the word I'm looking for, just a hot mess. Should we do that? 414-799-1620. Bill in Oconomowoc. Bill, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. You've got some great topics. You Thank really you. Do. I, I applaud you for uh, having the, <laughs> the backbone to wade into something like this. But let me bring my point of view to the table. Um if you think what Scott Walker did was totally the way it should have been, then it should go through immediately. If you have doubts uh, that it wasn't done correctly, and there was it was rammed through awful fast, we know that. It's the biggest corporate, uh, and I don't want to call it, some people call it wealth, but now it was, uh, uh, you'd probably come up with a better term. I, well, I would say it's an investment in future jobs. Okay, okay, okay. there you go. Yeah, you said it fast. The biggest investment that I've ever heard of, and uh, here's the point. Did we really need it when we couldn't feel the jobs we had? Was it done for a reason? Now, you're an attorney, and you know the law as good as anybody. I think there are a lot of questions that remain unanswered on Foxconn. And when you look how the DNR was shaped to make sure it worked, there's a lot of questions. Now, are they right? Are they wrong? That's what our country's about, democracy. We've got to listen to both sides. We really do. Well, let me ask you this. Let me ask you this, Bill. Let's let us assume that you you now have a, a change in administration. What what would it say to any company moving forward if hey you you cut some deal with a state, you you break ground, you buy all this property. This is the commitment you're going ahead, and then all of a sudden, all right, uh, one governor loses a race, a different governor comes in. And and now, all right, everything might be off the table, even though everything's been signed. Would you ever get a business to be able to and willing to come into Wisconsin again? Sure, sure you would. And I'll tell you the one that, that wants in right now, and you know it, Amazon. Uh, and you know their proposal. I know you're uh, aware of it. Are you, talking about the, are you talking about the Amazon facility in Oak Creek? Right. Yeah. Right, yeah. right, right. Yeah. But let's just get to stand, of course, with Foxconn. With Foxconn, if we as citizens and yourself, I want your opinion, I value it, uh, do you really honestly believe we're going to get paid $4.5 billion in, uh, what is it, a quarter century, and that's a good deal? Well, let me let me answer it this way, Bill. My answer is I, I don't know. I think the Foxconn deal is, is transformative. It at least has the potential to be transformative. And I'm not one of these corporate welfare guys where government picks winners and losers. I, I'm still taking heat because, if I, as I've said before, if I was in the state Senate, I'd vote against the Kimberly-Clark bailout deal. And they apparently they've got no Democrat support. They're like six Republicans vote short. So I don't think that's going to happen. We might talk about that a little bit later. I, I mean, I think there's a difference between trying to prop up a, a struggling industry versus doing something to bring something completely new into, in this case, into the United States. Now, maybe it'll turn out to be wrong. I, I don't know. We're going to have a better idea 10 years from now. And I understand, you know, the history that Foxconn has. And I know there was a report last week talking about how they're globally scaling down. I, I continue 
to be optimistic about this. And I've looked at the commitments Foxconn has made as far as investments that, you know, you know, throughout this entire state, as far as different facilities that they're putting up, the commitments they've made to like the University of Wisconsin system. I, I hope it, it works out. And I guess my answer to your question directly is I, I don't know. I, I don't know. We'll have a better idea in 10 years from now, but I guess I, I do think that right or wrong, once you have government that makes a decision and says, okay, this is the route we're going, and then people act in reliance on this, I think at this point in time to say, all right, we're going to try to do everything we can to throw a monkey wrench into this operation now that you've got facilities that are going up and you've got land that's being purchased. I mean, think of what it's like to try to unravel this deal at this particular point in time. What about all the people that have sold their land to Foxconn? All right, if you unravel this deal, does that mean that, I don't know, Foxconn uh, is entitled to give the land back and the people have to give the money back? At some point in time, I think you have to be able to rely on the promises, in this case, that the state made. And for, I think, Tony Evers and Josh Call, the incoming attorney general, for, for them to decide that they're now going to take a contrary position to what the state took when Governor Walker was the governor, I think that that would be perhaps morally wrong, certainly perhaps legally wrong, and I think it would be devastating moving forward if you're trying to deal with companies in the future. Hey, we've signed. Hey, I, I want you to, you know, I want you to bring your your company here, and these are the incentives that we're going to offer you, and let's sign off. And yeah, here, start breaking ground, make this financial commitment. And then you say, well, all right, well, the problem is I appreciate that, Governor, that you're saying this, but you're up for re-election in six months or you might not be running for re-election. What's that going to mean eight months from now if you lose? I, I think if you end up doing that, what's going to happen is nobody's going to trust you. Todd in Greenfield. Todd, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thanks for taking my call. Yeah, what do you think? Uh, with all of the repercussions and the positives, not, I mean, they might have lost a few homes in the area, and I feel for those people, but look how many houses are going to be built for the people who are going to work in that area. The businesses are going to be built in that area. All the positives, it just looks like the Democrats, they're sore losers, and they're just trying to put this, like you said, monkey wrench into it to make it look like it's a bad idea. It's, it's all positive. There's some negatives along the way, but they don't outweigh the positive. Well, it, 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 look, and, and I guess the, the thing is, thanks for the call, Todd. Again, I, I want to I try to be objective about this. I, I don't know. I don't think so. I think this is going to be a good deal. I think it is going to be transformative. I think we're going to look back 10 years from now. One of the things I like about the deal is Foxconn is making a huge investment up front. I mean, Foxconn is paying all these people from all over the state that are coming and are working and, you know, are building the facilities and all. And Foxconn, it's not like they get all the money up front. They're just different progress points. I mean, they have to, the, the, the tax incentives and a lot of the tax breaks they get and the considerations, it's based on them employing people. And if they don't meet those goals, well, all right, then they don't end up getting the money. I'm hoping they meet the goals. I think it's going to be transformative. I would say the same thing about the investment in the Bucks Arena, a Pfizer Forum. I, I think 10 years from now, we're going to look and, and see development in that area. The Park East, which has been a, a moonscape for a long, long time, I think you're going to see development tighter in, around that in businesses and residential. If that if that turns out not to be the case, then I think Pfizer Forum is going to be a mistake. But I, I'm, I don't necessarily believe that. I think it's going to all work out. 
but you know we won't know for a period of time. But I don't think that we should be throwing monkey wrenches into it at this point in time simply because of the politics. We as a state, right or wrong, made a commitment and I think you have to honor that commitment. I think Tom Barrett's streetcar, I think the trolley is going to turn out to be a disaster. But it, it's built right now. The question is, I mean, do you continue to build more stuff on it? Do you throw good money after bad? That's where that differs, perhaps, from what's going on with Foxconn and what's going on with uh, the Pfizer Forum. Pfizer Forum. It's 1256. This is Jeff Wagner. When we come back in just a couple minutes, charitable giving. I really have an interesting question for you. 500 bucks if you are the victim in an accident. The Potawatomi Casino, now we know how much it'll cost for competition. And could Tom Barrett really not have done better? Stick around. It's all coming up. 1256, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 109, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's a true story. Last night, I, I'm sitting late later in the evening. I'm, I'm up at my desk upstairs, and I'm... I'm Writing out checks. I'm, I'm paying some bills. And yes, some. I, I also am on the internet. I, I've gotten away from. This is one of the reasons why the post office struggles, of course. I mean, think 10 years ago, Eric Bilstein. I mean, 10 years ago, you would get, you know, you'd get your electric bill in the mail, you'd get your, your phone bill in the mail or whatever. And what you do is you probably sit down, you'd write out a check, you'd pull out, you know, you'd put the envelope in with the bill, yep. you'd seal it, you'd lick the stamp, you'd put the stamp on, and you'd send it out. Nowadays, I don't know about you, but I, I would say probably. Eighty percent of my regular bills, it, it's just it's all electronic. Oh, absolutely, yep. You know, Same I mean, thing. there are, I mean, there are a handful of them that I, I still, you know, pay just pay with a check. But all the credit card bills, the cable TV bill, the internet bill, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. the cell phone bill, the utility bill, it's all just you, know, you go on and you just kind of enter that in. It's that easy. It's yeah. that easy. And then when you actually don't, it, it actually takes away a little bit of the idea that you're spending money too. Makes you feel just a little bit better. <laughs> <laughs> huh. Okay. That's I got to, anyway. I, I got to think that was true. <laughs> but, but in any event, so I'm up there, I'm taking care of bills and, and most of it is, again, most of it is just, I'm, I'm handling it, you know, electronically. But there's, there's always a couple things that I end up having to write checks for. But one of the things I have on my desk that I've been sitting there for a couple, I had a, for about a week or so is I, I had a solicitation from a charity that I typically, you know, that I typically give to every okay. year. And of course, you know, I, a lot of us, you're get, that's what you're getting in the mail now. It's the end of the year, you know, do some giving mm-hmm. and things like that. And I, I was sitting there and I was kind of, I, I was going to make a donation and I was kind of trying to decide the amount. And it, what, what flashed in the back of my mind, now I don't know about you, Eric, but for years and years and years, I, I've always, I've itemized my taxes. This year, I don't know if I'm going to itemize my taxes. And, of course, if you itemize your taxes, you, you get a deduction for the money right. you give to yep. charity. And so it's, it's again, it's a little bit of an added bonus this year for what we'll, because of what we'll talk about in just a minute. I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to itemize. And I was. I was sitting there thinking, huh. Should I give them the same amount of money or or what? I was wrestling oh, man, with that. That's scary because you can imagine a lot of people are probably thinking the same thing. Well, that's what we're about to find out. If you are wondering why I, I'm in this quandary, um, again, if if you if you used to itemize your taxes, and of course, on, there there is there is this thing called the standard deduction. I know a lot of people take care of of that. What it was last year, for example, is when you sit down to do your federal taxes, the standard deduction for an individual was 6300 bucks. 
And for a married couple, it was $12,700. So unless you have, unless you have expenses that exceed, if let's say it's a married couple, $12,700, you just take the standard deduction. Okay. You, you end up ahead. All right. But if you, for example, live in a high tax state like Wisconsin, you could write off, well, you could write off your, your state taxes. And depending on what your income level, that could be pretty big. You could also write off your mortgage interest. You could write off your charitable deductions, et cetera, et cetera. So you, you get to a certain amount. And if your, your mortgage interest and your state taxes and your donations to charity and your other deductions, if it exceeded $12,700, the standard deduction, you could write it off. And so essentially, you're getting a bit of a tax incentive to donate to charity. One of the things that happened in the tax reform bill that was passed and signed by the president earlier this year is the standard deduction has been increased. So it went from, let's talk about married couples, $12,700 last year to $24,000 for married couples. So what this means is, before it makes any sense to try to itemize, you've got to have deductions over $24,000. And for most people, not everybody, including a lot of people that used to itemize, you're not going to have deductions that are that high because one of the things they also did is they also limited the amount of state and local taxes um, that you could deduct. They they capped that at at $10,000. So let's say... Let's say you lived in a in a nice house and you had your property taxes were twelve or fourteen thousand bucks. Well, okay, you 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 can't you, you can't deduct that anymore above ten thousand. So the effect is for lots and lots of people who used to be able to again itemize, they're not going to be able to do that anymore. They're just going to take the standard deduction. They'll be better off. What that means though is if you're sitting around thinking, gee. I'm getting these different solicitations from charities, including charities I used to support. I used to have this incentive because I knew if I if I wrote out a check to them, I will at least get some credit or something back from that from the government. Interesting story in the Wall Street Journal today, which kind of mirrored what I was going through last night. And by the way, let me just kind of cut to the chase on that. I, I The donation I made last night to this particular charity was actually more than the one I, I made last year. But but regardless, it was in the back of my mind thinking, okay, I, do, I don't know. I'm probably not going to be able to write this off because I don't think I'm going to have enough deductions because of some of the things I've gone through and you know, selling houses and moving houses around and property tax. I don't think I'm going to have enough money to you know, exceed that $24,000 limit. Maybe my accountant will disagree, but I, I don't, my, my general sense is I don't think I'm going to be over that limit. Well, all right, the story in the Wall Street Journal is charities are bracing for less. And what they're finding is that this tax law, which has now taken millions and millions of people who middle class, maybe upper middle class, who used to itemize, and now it's put them in this standard deduction thing where they're not going to get credit for charitable deductions. And a lot of charities are saying, well, you know, hopefully we, we don't, we, we hope that the reason people give to us isn't just because they, they get a tax deduction, but nevertheless, it is, I think they're worried that this is going to be a factor. 
Let's open up the phone lines, 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, is this tax law, do you think it's going to have an impact on charitable giving? Will people tend to give less if it looks like they're not going to get a, be the ability to be able to deduct this from their taxes? Do you think it might change the way you operate? 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Will it have an effect? I'll tell you where I come down this and we'll discuss in just a minute. But this is something that I think everybody's got to start thinking about as we get all those solicitations. Does it make any difference? Is charitable giving completely and totally separate from the tax break? Or is it all kind of related? And will one of the unintended consequences of the tax deal that was made months and months ago, is it going to be the charities get hurt? What do you think? 414-799-1620. We discuss in just a minute. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 117, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 120, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. This is going to be one of the things that a lot of folks are going to be wrestling with over the course of the next couple months. In many cases, the, the rules with regard to taxes have changed dramatically. If you used to itemize in the past, there's a good chance that you're not going to, it's not going to make any sense to itemize in the future. That's why this new tax law, one of the things it did is it dramatically increased, it doubled, essentially doubled the, the standard deduction. Used to be that it made sense to itemize if you were a married couple and, um, the standard deduction was $12,700. So if you had, mortgage interest and you had state taxes and you had charitable deductions that exceeded that amount, then you would itemize. Well, what they've done is they've increased the um, standard deduction to $24,000 and they've also capped at $10,000 the state and local deductions. So if you're paying $14,000 a year in property taxes, you you can't deduct $14,000, you can only deduct $10,000. As a result of that, Lots and lots of people simply aren't going to get to that $24,000 limit. That's just the reality. So that means if you're not going to be able to get to that limit, you're not going to be able to get any credit for your deductions that for the donations you make to charity. Is that going to hurt the charity? 414-799-1620. Um, and, and for this to work, it, I, I, I need you to be honest. I mean, do you think this is going to affect, for example, your, your charitable giving? I have a text here from someone who says, I already cut my United way from $900 to $120. And yes, it is because I am no longer going to be deducting. Here's another one. Yes, I am not donating anything this year, clothes or goods or money. Um, I'll have a rummage sale. The rest of the deduction does not equal the amount of money. Everything is going up. Uh, Mike says, sometimes my family needs more than my ch- than the charity. The tax incentive helps bridge that gap. It will, however, certainly affect charitable giving, in my opinion. 414-799-1620. Let's talk to Mike in Fond du Lac. Hi, Mike. Hi, how are you doing? Well, thank you. Okay, is this going to screw up charities moving forward? Well, I do a sled dog race for, I don't know, can I say Make-A-Wish? Sure. Make-A-Wish is a wonderful charity. You can sure promote that on my program. Okay, yeah, we got a sled dog race this Saturday at Rolling Meadows Golf Course, and I'm actually sitting in my truck with the dog following, <laughs> and we, uh, we're we picking up donations, and we're about on the same course we were last year. Okay. The people that who donate to Make-A-Wish, it's not for the... Tax credit. They're right. Just, 
It's because they believe in the cause. Yes, sir. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, thanks. I mean, I think that's. I, I think that, that that's, by the way, it's great news. And I'm certainly not discouraging people from doing that. I'm just speculating. I, I will tell you, I think especially once once people who have itemized in the past start to see the dynamics. And, and you know, you, you, do, you sit down with TurboTax and do your own taxes or you send your taxes off to the accountant. I, I think this is one of these years where nobody knows exactly how this is going going to all play out nobody knows is it going to make more sense to itemize or not to itemize or things like that although the one thing we know is that millions of people who used to itemize their taxes it's not gonna it's not going to make dollar it's not gonna it's not gonna make sense to continue to itemize so if you are doing the charitable giving and you're in that category one of those millions of people you're now doing it out of the goodness of your heart i guess just intuitively intuitively it it makes sense to me that this is going to affect donations uh, at least maybe the the size of the donations for for people because essentially the government was by giving you that tax break and you can argue about whether you know should the government be giving people tax breaks for making charitable donations or not but by giving that people that tax break the government was in, subsidizing in a way at least a portion of your donation 4147991620 Mike in Madison hi Mike yeah, hi. Um, I do some work with nonprofits, and I'm on a board. And um, it's still anecdotal, but it's it's certainly hitting some of the cash flow. And you're starting to see it now through December. This is when all the nonprofits really should be taking a hard look at it because um, especially the social and environmental groups, they're the ones that probably have less, um, you know, or as opposed to the churches, churches right. you know, you're, people you're... tithe and they view it as a fixed expense, whereas right. opposed to the social environmentals, they're more of a, a courtesy or a, a discretionary or a sort point. of thing. Yeah, yeah, very discretionary. So I think these are very serious times, and I, and I I would be I guess I would be concerned if I was doing fundraising on a nonprofit and hope that there was some solution, such as perhaps uh, lobbying for charity to be on the first page of your tax returns, and it wouldn't become a deduction. That would solve a lot of problems. Mm. Yeah, no, I think it's I, I you know none of us. Again, you're talking. We're, we're both talking anecdotally now, but I, I think. My guess is, you know, you're, you're not going to really have an idea for a year or two because, for example, this year, I don't think people, I, I think people still are kind of up. I think there's probably a lot of people who still don't know what we're talking about. What do you mean they've, they've increased right. the standard deduction? You're not, not uh, itemizing. And then there's a lot of people, and I'm in this category, I don't know how the numbers are going to end up at the end of the year. You know, I just. Yeah, I, 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 you're going to see people double dipping. I mean, they're going to try to bunch up in one year and then not do anything the next year. But that also hurts a lot of nonprofits because they do you know, one year at a time projections, and they really need to start thinking longer term or they're going to be not right. thinking through this. Yeah, no, thanks for the call. I, I, I agree with you, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to do this as a topic because it, it, it's, again, it, it, is a, it is a factor, and it is definitely one of these unintended consequences of the changes in, in the tax law, and I think it is going to require, just like Mike was saying, I think it's going to require charities to adapt to this some perhaps more than others. I mean, and I agree with what he was saying about the churches. Your church is your is your church, and you know if you make a donation to your church, it's nice to be able to write that off. But at the same time, that that's that's your church. Some of the other, you know, whether it's health 
related charities or whether it's some of the, you know, some of the social charities and things like that, that is a different dynamic where the money is perhaps more discretionary. But it, it's certainly something to keep in mind. And it's certainly something to watch because, again, you know, when, whenever you do something here, we're going to increase the standard deduction. And that, I think, is going to reduce the taxes for a lot of people. But that, that means that there are going to be some people who end up being losers in that, and charities might be one of them. It's 127. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 135. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 2018 marks the 13th year of our Kids to Kids Christmas campaign from Capco Medical Stamping and WTMJ. In that time, we have given away nearly 200,000 toys to kids in need. To find out where you can drop off a toy or make a donation, head to WTMJ.com now. And don't forget that this Friday, we will be live at the VMP Healthcare and Community Living in Milwaukee. Stop by from noon to 6. Help us spread the holiday cheer. That is right. Gru's back producing the show. All right. Yeah, that's right. I will be VMP at VMP Healthcare and Community Living in West Dallas. I'll be there from three to six. John McCure comes in afterwards. It, it is, if you have not been down there, they really do kids to Christmas upright. They, they set up a big winter wonderland sort of thing and they have a number of Santa's elves who are there taking the donations and they've got, you know, the fire department is there and they set up, they do a big bonfire. And in years past, I don't know what the plans are for this year, but they've had, like carriage rides or horse-drawn wagon or hay hay wagon rides. It's always been very, very cool. And, of course, they've got decorations set up, and they have hot chocolate and coffee and hot dogs, and they've got all sorts of events that are going on in the facility. It's wonderful. But, of course, the, the overall thing is we want people to come down, and we want you to drop off new toys. Then what ends up happening is they all get packaged together. We do a few more events, and ultimately they get distributed to children in need at the holiday season. It is a wonderful, wonderful event. And we'd encourage everybody to participate. Like I say, there's all sorts of different places where you can drop off things. The Culver's restaurants take them. But our first big toy collection live remote broadcast is going to be two days from today, Friday, VMP Healthcare and Community Living in Milwaukee. All right. The, the deer, the gun deer season is, is over. And by all accounts, it was very, very successful. The number of deer taken was, was up over last year. That, that's absolutely tremendous. And even, perhaps even better, the, the number of accidental shootings, the number of people injured going into the woods, that, that, that's down dramatically. I mean, hunter safety, I, I don't know whether people are being more careful or the message is getting out or, or whatever, but it's, it is incredibly safe to go hunting. Which brings me to this story that I want to discuss with you. Journal Sentinel had it. Criminal charges have now been brought against a 33-year-old guy from Oconomowoc. The incident that I'm going to tell you about goes back to November of 2017. So this did not happen this hunting season. It happened back in 2017. So here's here's what the complaint says happened. Um. November 26th of 2017, there's a guy deer hunting, I believe it's Waukesha County. Is it the Ashapan River? I think that's how you pronounce it. Somebody will correct me if I'm wrong. Um, he, he's, he's deer hunting. This is last deer hunting season. And what happens is he apparently mistakes the white, a white paddle of a guy's kayak for a deer tail. Apparently, what what happens is there's there's a guy who's on the river and he's in a kayak and he's waterfowl hunting while the while the deer hunters are out. 
So there's this man. He's he's hunting deer. He sees a white paddle, mistakes the white paddle on the for the kayak for a deer tail, and he fires his 12 gauge shotgun into a marsh. The shotgun slug pierces the kayak and strikes the guy who is paddling it, who again was waterfowl hunting, and so the the shotgun slug strikes him in both legs. All right, the the guy who fired the shot. Here's the man react and approaches him to ask if he was okay. The guy who was waterfowl hunting was not wearing any blaze orange, although waterfowl hunters are, are not required to do this, according to the DNR. So you have this guy out who's waterfowl hunting at the same time that you've got all these deer hunters that are out. He's not wearing blaze orange. All right. The victim, the guy that was shot, told police he was 40 or 50 yards away from the deer hunter when he heard the shot. And he says he paddled about 200 yards upriver to make sure he was out of the way before calling 911. So this is, it it is clearly an, an accident here. I mean, nobody is arguing that the guy who shot the waterfowl hunter was trying to shoot him. You've got the guy who's deer hunting. He's wearing his blaze orange. He looks out, he sees like through this marsh that there's this white, that there's this thing that he mistakes as the white tail of a deer. He fires, turns out that it's a guy waterfowl hunting in a kayak who's not wearing blaze arms. So that's, that's kind of the circumstance. The good news is no, nobody seriously injured as a result of this, but the, the guy, you know, what was hit in both legs. They have now brought charges against the hunter accused of negligent handling of a weapon that is a misdemeanor, nine months in jail, and $10,000 in fines. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. From the moment I saw this story, I've been fascinated to discuss it with you. Clearly an accident, deer hunting time. You've got a guy out who's waterfowl hunting who's not wearing blaze orange. Now, the rules apparently don't require him to do it, but he's not wearing blaze orange. He's got a white paddle on his kayak. You have a deer hunter who mistakes that white paddle for a deer and fires a shot with the shotgun through the marsh. All right. Criminal charges appropriate. Does this strike you as criminal behavior or was it just an unfortunate series of circumstances that led to it being an accident and the appropriate response is maybe no harm, no foul or guy who was accidentally shot, if you want to file a civil lawsuit for your medical expenses or whatever, does the hunter, does the deer hunter need to be prosecuted criminally? 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. What do you think? Hunters of Wisconsin, I'm curious as to your opinion. We discuss in just a minute. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 141. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 144, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. I admit, I'm fascinated as to what your reaction is going to be to the story. If you're just tuning in, this happened, the, the charges were just filed, but it happened a year ago. Guy is out deer hunting in, in I think it's Waukesha County, which is where this occurred. He, he sees what he thinks is the tail of a deer, and he fires a shotgun blast at it through a marsh. Turns out it's a guy in a kayak who is waterfowl hunting who has a white paddle. The man isn't wearing blaze orange, and the shotgun blast, the slug 
um, goes through the the pellets go through the uh, kayak, hit the guy in both legs. So it's no ultimately nobody is seriously injured, thankfully, as a result of this. But now the man who fired the shot, the deer hunter, he's been charged with a with a crime, a misdemeanor. It's an accident all around, but do you think he deserves to be criminally prosecuted? 414-799-1620. Let's start with, let's see, Dave in Menominee Falls. Dave, you're first. Good afternoon. Hi. Hi, Dave. Um, I believe that he should not be charged at all. First of all, he wasn't wearing blaze orange. But the, now the law says, he, as long as he's duck hunting, waterfowl hunting, whatever, he's, he's not required I, to. I understand that. My next question on this is, was he, uh, the guy could have walked away and said, I never shot you. Right. No, he didn't do I, that. No, he, 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 he went, he followed up to make sure the man was okay. Yeah. Right. So obviously he cared and checked on, on the guy where he probably could have walked away and just, you know, said it wasn't me or whatever. I don't know if the situation or the hunting part of it, but I don't believe the guy should have been wearing some type of orange when it's gun hunting season. You, when you're out there hunting, you need to let other people know you're there. Well, if I mean, thank, thanks for, I mean, I, I do, I, I will say this, regardless of, regardless of what the, the, the law requires, if it were me and I was waterfowl hunting and I knew that there were, I, I'm, I'm waterfowl hunting in an area where there's a ton of deer hunters. My, my guess is I'm going to be wearing blaze orange as well because because you don't want this to happen. But nevertheless, the the law doesn't require it. Nobody's suggesting that the guy who was duck hunting, waterfowl hunting, whatever. Nobody suggests that he, you know, wasn't where he was allowed to be and that he wasn't dressed appropriately because the law doesn't require it. Okay, Dave says, no, nah, it's just an accident. He should have been wearing blaze orange. 414-799-1620. Alex in Oconomowoc. Hi, Alex. Hi, how's it going? What do you think? Um, it's definitely negligence. I mean, you're supposed to know your target, what's beyond. It's a horrible shot shooting at the tail of a deer. You don't know if it's a buck, a dove. You don't know what it is. So, I mean, it's his fault. I don't think he should do jail time but he should definitely lose his license for a year or something because you're supposed to know your target and what's beyond. Mm-hmm. You don't shoot at the tail of a deer. That's not a kill shot. I mean. Right. Do you think it's reasonable to mistake a paddle on a kayak for the white tail of a deer? I I don't. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. So you think the guy, you think the hunter was was careless in the extreme? He was careless. I mean. I personally would wear boys orange too, but you don't wear boys orange duck hunting. And right. Deer hunting, you don't shoot at a tail of a deer. Right. <laughs> Got it. No. Right. Thank, thanks. Thanks. And, and, and but you know, I mean, I mean, I understand. You know, waterfowl hunters, you you you're big into the camouflage and stuff. I'm just simply saying. For example, there's a place I play golf. They they close the golf course at even if the weather is nice at the end of November. Because there's lots of deer hunting in the you know the areas around the golf course, even if the weather's nice enough to play golf, they close they close the golf course because you know the concern is that I don't know. Well, I mean maybe I mean given the fact that people are out there with high powered rifles, that you miss the deer, you fire a shot, it can travel the the bullet can travel 
you know, what a, a half a mile or mile or whatever. There's all sorts of factors about that. But in this particular case, they, they, this wasn't an accident. The guy hit what he was shooting at. He was just he thought he was shooting at a deer when he really ended up shooting at the paddle of a waterfowl hunter. 414-799-1620. Mike in Watertown. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Yeah, he's absolutely um, liable and negligent in his handling of the firearm. It's one of the basic rules of hunter safety when you get educated to handle a firearm. Uh, he he, Namely, no he didn't know what shooting. his target was. He, he had no business shooting at what he had no idea what it was. Right. Well, I mean, he thought he saw the tail. He thought he thought that's what it was. Well, like the previous caller said, a tail shot's not a kill shot. You need to know what you're shooting at. Right. You, you right. can't just shoot at motion. Right, right, or something that you think is a is a tail because yeah. there well, could be all sorts of stuff that was exactly. white. You think it's a tail; it might not be. In this case, it clearly was not. Do you support criminal charges against the guy? I think that should be up to the whoever's filing the charges, uh-huh. and if they want to settle with him and new, do no time, just right. suspend his license or give him a fine or that's that's criminal right. negligence is going to be up to the right you're not necessarily saying you think the guy needs to do nine months in jail it's just no, that there needs to be a penalty not. right it was an honest mistake but i mean he needs to have some repercussions for his action got it thanks to call 414-799-1620 let's talk to tony in waukesha tony or in wtmj hello hi yeah I, I agree with the past two callers you should absolutely know what you're shooting at a tail is not a kill shot and that is one of the first things they teach you the be sure of your target and beyond, and this guy wasn't sure of anything, and his privileges should be taken away. Yeah, I guess I, you know, I, I would tell you one of the things that struck me, and again, this is this is the way that the criminal complaint portrays it. The guy sees a flash of of white through a through a marsh. And then just fires a shot at it. I, yeah, I'm, I'm like, thinking that could be anything, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. I mean, again, and I, I, I defer to you know people who are regular hunters about stuff like this, but I, I will tell you, it, it's, it's not like his story is. Gee, I, I, I thought. Well, I mean, his story is not like I, I saw this and I thought it was a deer. His story is I, I saw this flash of white through a marsh and I, I took off and I fired a shot at it. That would seem to me to be violating basic hunting rule like 101, which is know what it is that you're you're looking at. I mean, this isn't a situation where the guy fired fired a shot at a, at a deer and the deer ran out of the way and there was somebody that was behind the deer or something you didn't necessarily see. This is one where he fired at what turned out to be a paddle. Just from my perspective, again, I defer to those of you who are much more experienced hunters, but I, I hear the story. He fired at a paddle. That just doesn't seem right to me. Kurt in Racine. Kurt, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Um, yeah, he should be charged. I mean, you got to know what you're shooting at. Um, you know, I, I was telling your screener, there's, you know, there's a different situation if you're doing a deer drive. Um, it's possible, you know, you, you felt that you spooked the deer and then you seen like a tail, you know, come up, but right. still that's really not, you know, the case, you know, you got to know what you're shooting at. So, I mean, charge a guy at least with something. I mean, it's just yeah. stupidity, you know, how gun old can you, you know, do you have to be to actually, you know, shoot and kill something, you know, it's, well, it's ridiculous, you know? Well, and again, I think so. I mean, I guess I, I look at this, and I, am, am I saying he does, needs to do nine months in prison? And my answer would be no, no, nine months in jail, no. But I have to tell you, I, I agree with at least the majority of you. I, I don't think it's I, – I don't have a problem with these charges. To me, 
All right. To me, it is it is reckless in the extreme. They charge him with negligent handling of firearm. And I guess I, I hear these circumstances and he mistook the paddle on a kayak for uh, again for for a deer. Well, that that tells me that that, you know, all he could see, like you were saying, was all he could see was what he thought was the tail. I, I think you before you you pull a trigger and shoot at something, you have to have a better idea that, of what it is that you're shooting at. Other than just, well, it, it looks like, I mean, I thought it might be a deer that you're supposed to verify what your targets are. Now, do I think that this is a case where you need to put the guy in jail for nine months? No, it doesn't strike me as being one like that. But, you know, would I revoke a hunting license? Absolutely. And he's looking at $10,000 in fines. Would I impose a fine? Yeah, I, I think I, I think I would, because this is this is an incredibly dangerous sort of thing to do. The good news out of this story is nobody was seriously hurt, but this could easily be a completely different conversation that we're having because, uh, again, the, the, the shotgun, what, whatever he, he fired at it, hits the guy in a different position, and instead of talking about, well, some minor injuries to the legs, you know, we're talking about somebody dead on the river. 414-799-1620. Let's talk to Steve in Okachi. Steve, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Yeah, hey Jeff. I, I think probably the bigger um, the bigger uh, benefit to the guy in the community would be a sentence of making him go through Hunter Ed again before he buys another license. Yeah. And if they impose a fine, have that fine go to safety uh, and Hunter mm-hmm. Ed training through the DNR. Yeah. Does it, um, is, I, is, is there any justification for this guy pulling the trigger? Do you think? Well, not no, not for shooting at movement with deer hunting. No, I mean just like all the. The previous four callers said you got to be sure of your target and what's behind it. So, shooting at something that you think might be something, no, I don't think that's right at all. Right. I'll throw one more thing out there. I'll give a hundred bucks to anybody that can get ducks to come into a decoy spread wearing blaze orange. <laughs> well, I, I guess I, I see, and I, I understand that. I, but my, my 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 flip side question would be: Would you, if you're in an area where you know there's a lot of deer hunters? Would you be out doing waterfowl hunting in that same place, again, wearing camouflage or whatever? Well, I mean, typically the law is for places like Horicon Marsh, Winnebago, big bodies of water where guys are out on right. boats or blinds where there's not a lot of guys walking around because you're in water. Right. You know, you're wearing waders, you're in a boat. The river is a little different. Guys can float rivers. Guys can even sit on the banks of rivers and hunt ducks. So Right. Pretty much up to the person. I wouldn't necessarily choose the Ashpond River to <laughs> duck hunt during deer season. Right. No. Th- and I guess that's. And again, that's my. Th- that's my point as well. I'm not. I'm not trying to victimize the victim, but I. I, I was kind of thinking that through as I was processing the story. And 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 yeah, I, I understand. You don't wear blaze orange because the ducks are going to see you. You're you're not going to be coming in. But I mean, I know. For example, I have friends who live what we will describe as up north. And during the week of deer season, they vacate their place because there's lots of deer hunters around with high-powered rifles, etc. who, you know, you, you go through all the hunter safety and stuff, but they would tell me stories about, you know, finding, um, you know, shells, shell ca- bullet holes in their garage and things like that because, again, God knows what people were, were shooting at. I'm just saying that if it were me and I was a duck hunter, I, I don't think I'd be in an area where I know that there's a lot of deer hunters as well if I'm in camouflage. And I'm not justifying the guy firing the shot. Don't get me wrong. I, I'm just saying that this is one where I don't think that this is how I would do it. 
Long story short, though, I, I think the charges are appropriate. I, I don't think you need to put the guy in prison or jail for nine months, but I, I do think this is negligent handling of a firearm. But maybe it's, again, it's an object lesson. It does seem to me to be a little bit of blame to go all around, and maybe maybe the duck hunter who was shot wants to rethink where he hunts and when he hunts next year, and the guy who was looking for the deer, for the love of God, make sure you know what you're shooting at before you pull the trigger. 157, Jeff Wachter, WTMJ. Two oh eight, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ, Drew, Melissa, for two hundred twenty-four thousand dollars, you would think that the UW system could ship, could hire somebody, I don't know, with a little bit better judgment, wouldn't you think? You know the story, Melissa. Refresh my memory. All right, now, all right, the, all right, the 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 chancellor at UW Lacrosse, guy named Joe Gal, he has been there. Since 2007, he has been sort of a controversial figure. He makes 224 grand a year. All right, he's the guy who thought it would be a good idea a couple months ago to bring an aging pornographic film actress to UW Lacrosse to talk to students about the pornographic film industry. Hmm. Now, in the, the in today's day and age, with the hashtag Me Too movements and all the the concerns about families that have been destroyed by I don't know fascinations that perhaps you know somebody has with pornography, why he thought that this would be a good idea is absolutely beyond me. But he did, and and what he did is he decided to use the the campus discretionary fund to pay for this and the woman can, and they knew that they were treading on on really like thin ice because they didn't promote this speech like they would normally promote you know bringing a guest speaker here they kind of did some stuff to keep it on the down low but she showed up and they had about 90 students and she went on to talk about you know pornography and how pornography isn't really all that bad and then she started talking about you know the all right you know this pornography isn't this isn't this is fantasy stuff it's you know you shouldn't you shouldn't necessarily use this as like sex instructionals and things like that but in any event they brought a pornographic film actress with a discretionary fund there and so he got and they, and they did it like i say in a sneaky fashion they, they they did not publicize this like you normally would. So I think the the chancellor up there knew knew that this was 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 a bad thing, or that they were trying to pull a fast one. Well, what ultimately happened is once word of this got out, he, he said, "Okay, look, I'm, I'm sorry I did this. I'm going to I'm going to reimburse the discretionary fund. I will pay for this out of my out of my my personal pocket, my my own pocket." Well, the, the Board of Regents, and I have criticized the Board of Regents before, but they, um, they've they decided uh, that that's not uh, enough. For example, you know, one of the Regents, you know, he, he's, he's kind of like, you know, pornography is a horrible hill on which to plant the flag of free expression. Um, you know, he wonders whether the chancellor had ever talked with a woman whose husband is trapped in the addictive fantasies that he longs to escape, et cetera, et cetera. Bottom line of all this is that this was, I think, incredibly bad judgment by a guy who makes two hundred plus thousand dollars a year. In any event, uh, the board of regents has slapped him down. Um, he's apparently been reprimanded for um, inviting this pornographic film actress to campus to talk about the adult entertainment industry. 
and uh, what they've apparently said is that they've uh, they're looking at they're looking at like canceling a raise or something that he might be entitled to for this this lack of judgment. A uh, Ray Cross who runs the UW system said that um, <laughs> criticized Gal for a lack of responsible oversight with respect to the use of state funds. Yeah, in other words, who would have thought that it would be a good idea to take state money and use it to bring a pornographic film actress to to UW Lacrosse. But this is not the first time UW Lacrosse has been involved in a situation. All right, there was a story yesterday, and I don't want to let it pass without underscoring the significance of this and what it means for gambling in the state of Wisconsin moving forward. I will explain it in just a moment. If you're on, uh, hang on, it's 213. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 215, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. President Trump and the First Lady head to South America. John Mercure runs down the controversial list of meetings that the President has planned. That's going to happen at 430 today on Wisconsin's Afternoon News. Please tune in. All right. During the, the campaign for the gubernatorial election, we would on occasion open up the phone lines to talk about the status of the race and and one of the things that inevitably some people would call up about and they'd say, Well, you know, I voted for Scott Walker in in twenty ten and I voted for him in the recall and I voted for him in twenty fourteen, but I'm not gonna vote for him this year. And I would always ask, Okay, why why is that? What's happened? And one of the things, and Gru, you could be my witness, that we would hear from time to time is I'm mad because he didn't allow the Menominee Indian tribe to open up that casino down at the Dairyland Greyhound Park in Kenosha. He should have allowed them to do it. I'm mad at him. I'm not voting for him. And I, I would always then say, well, you know, it's it's very complicated. And people didn't want to hear it. And I, and I get it. I don't I don't care. But but people didn't want to hear like the facts behind that decision. But they were just mad that they wanted to have a casino in you know, in, in Kenosha. I think a casino in Kenosha would be a good thing. I continue to believe that. But there is a huge capital B-U-T that's out there. And yesterday, the matters got a little bit clearer. Let me let me try to back into this. It, it It's all a do-the-math sort of thing. When Jim Doyle was the governor, he cut a deal with, in this case, we're, we're talking about the Potawatomi tribe. Now, I happen to think it was a very favorable deal for the trial tribe, but a deal was a deal. And in exchange for payments to the state and the city and the county, the Potawatomi got exclusive rights to run a, a gambling casino. The state, in the deal that Doyle cut, gave them exclusive rights to operate a gambling casino for a 50-mile radius, all right? Any casino deal has to be signed off by the Bureau of Indian Affairs. So follow me on this. The Bureau of Indian Affairs said, no, 50 miles is too too wide, too long a range. We're going to limit it to 30 miles. So the Bureau of Indian Affairs said, 30 miles, you've got exclusive rights. But the deal that they did with the state said 50 miles. Okay. So that that's that's been the deal. Potawatomi pays, I think, I mean, they pay a bunch of money. State gets about $25 million from the Potawatomi every year from, you know, revenues that they generate at the casino. Well, a couple of years ago, you've got the Menominee Indian Tribe, which is a small tribe based out of, outside of Shawano. They hook up 
with, a, again, a Seminole tribe out of Florida. They want to bring, like, the Hard Rock Hotel and Casino. They want to bring that, put it in the Dairyland, great, where we used to have Dairyland Greyhound Park down, down in Kenosha. All right, well, now you've got this problem, though. The problem is this deal that the former governor, Jim Doyle, had cut with the Menominee that says, hey, you have exclusive rights to have a casino within a 50-mile radius. And so one of the huge factors that was out there, and I don't know that anybody did a good enough job of explaining this, was, all right, if you allow the Menominee tribe to go ahead and open that casino at Dairyland, what what happens with this agreement that they had with the Potawatomi? Because the Potawatomi, they're going to come in and they're going to say, wait a second, you're in violation of our agreement. You're going to owe us damages. And that was one of one of the reasons why the governor wouldn't go ahead and support that, wouldn't approve it, because he recognized that there was, if you went ahead and had this casino that was opened, there was going to be years of litigation, and they had auditors that said, you go ahead and do this, and the state might be on the hook, might end up having to pay up to $500 million to the Potawatomi tribe. Well, okay, that makes no economic sense if you go ahead and do that. I mean, the the idea of this is you have gambling, and it's generating revenue for the, for the state. Well, it makes no it makes absolutely no sense to go ahead and open a allow a second casino to open if that means that all of a sudden you're going to be on the hook for five hundred million dollars to the Potawatomi tribe. And, and it was it was the economics of that that I think a lot of people just didn't get, even though many of us think that uh, uh, for economic development and a lot of reasons a casino in Kenosha would be good. Well, anyhow, the deal. Yesterday, they've apparently cut a new deal with the, the Potawatomi tribe. And what it says, what it says is that if there were to be another casino that were opened up outside that 30-mile radius, like where the Dairyland was, the Potawatomi could withhold up to $250 million to the state. So that would be the amount of damages. Now, the Potawatomi pay about, uh, I have the numbers right here. Da, 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 da. Last year, I think it was $25 million. They pay $25 million to the state. So the, the deal would be, if you allow another casino to go in within that 30 to 50-mile radius, what that means is the Potawatomi could withhold up to $250 million. Why I think this is significant is now that there is certainty to this, you know exactly what the cost is going to be. You know, before auditors said maybe it could be up to $500 million and we could be involved in litigations for years. Now you know is the cost is $250 bucks, which is a, a lot of money. My guess is that that's, that's prohibitive, that, that that's going to be such an expense and such a cost to the state that it's not going to make economic sense to come in and allow, you know, another casino to operate. But now at least you know what that amount is. So if some operator wants to come in and, for example, say, hey, I, I want to take another look at this location. I want to build a casino there. And, again, you, the Indian tribes want to do this. All right, now you know what the cost is going to be. You say, okay, if you're the state, if we go ahead and approve this, we know 
that we're going to lose $250 million in revenue from the Potawatomi. That's a certainty. They're going to be with able to withhold $250 million. So then it's just to do the math question. It's if we approve this other casino, all right, how much are they going to pay us? And how long is it going to take to come out ahead? Because we're not going to be getting the dough from the Potawatomi tribe anymore. We're going to lose $250 million. How long is it going to take us to get that dough back? That's what the dynamic ends up being. So it's a real simple, it's a do the math sort of thing. Does this make it easier or more likely that you're going to have a casino in Kenosha? Not necessarily, but it does provide a degree of certainty. So now we, we know what we're talking about. If another operator comes in and they decide that that's what they want to do, we can sit there and you can just get out your calculators. You can say, okay, this is how much they are saying they're going to pay the taxpayers in the state of Wisconsin. This is what we know we're going to lose in revenue from the Potawatomi tribe. Does it make sense? Um, how long would it take to get a payback? All those different things. It, it's just it's just like if you're sitting down and you're getting ready to do Social Security, like you are, Gru. You're planning your Social Security, and you are trying, Gru, to decide if you want to take Social Security January 1st of 2019 or January 1st of 2020. All right, you 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 could go on Social Security January 1st of 2020, and they'd say, okay, you get two thousand dollars a month. If you wait till 20, January 1st, 2019, you get $2,000 a month. If you wait until January 1st of 2020, you get $2,200 a month. Well, then it's a simple mathematical thing. You say, okay, I'm going to get $200 more a month if I wait a year. That That's good, but you will have given up $2,000 a month times 12, $24,000 that you could have already collected. So the question becomes, how long would you have to live if you got that extra $200 a month? What is what is the point where you, you catch up? In my example, you know, $200 more a month, 12 months, you'd have to, you know, you'd have to live 10 years to make up for the money that you lost. I understand it's a little more complicated than that with time value of money and taxes and stuff like that. But, but essentially you do the math. You say, okay, well, I could take it January 1st, 2019. I get $2,000 a month. If I wait, $2,200 a month a year later, but it's going to take me 10 years to catch up, and then after that 10 years, I'm ahead. You just sit there and you do the math and you make the decision. That's where we are now with Indian gaming in Wisconsin. So I think it's good that you have that certainty. I also think it makes it unlikely that you're going to have another operator that's going to come in and be able to give a good enough deal to give the state the incentive to go ahead and approve the casino, because that means that you'd be losing $250 million from the Potawatomi. So yesterday was at least, I don't know if it was good or bad, but it was a day that gave clarity to Indian gaming in southeastern Wisconsin. And believe me, we have needed that for a long time. 225, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 227, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. In the whole universe of all the people that live in the city of Milwaukee, couldn't Tom Barrett have found a better choice than he did to put on the Fire and Police Commission? This is one of the most interesting stories of the week. Tom Barrett nominated a guy named Everett, Everett Cockroft to the Fire and Police Commission. Right, And this was going to be, he's a retired firefighter. This was going to be a nomination that was, was just going to sail through until actually the, the Journal Sentinel you know, uncovered uh, an email that the guy had, had sent a while back um, that 
candidly. Now, this is somebody that you're putting on the Fire and Police Commission. The email that the guy sent out, you know, talked about how, well, he questioned he questioned the fire officers. He said that uh, police only guard their wallets, pension, and benefits, adding that officers' behavior has led to lawsuits linked to excessive force, sexual abuse, and killing people. I mean, it's it's a pretty good anti-police officer rant. Um, after this surfaced, a number of aldermen said, hey, hey, wait a second, you know, this is... <laughs> Is this the guy that we want who is going, is this guy that's going to be able to be fair and impartial when it comes to being on the fire and police commission? Matter of fact, you know, Bob Donovan, you know, he said, look, I've talked to this guy. It's clear that he bears a deep animus towards a significant portion of the membership of the Milwaukee Fire and Police Departments. Um, You know, he made these various remarks. And said when I talked to him, he just kind of you know reiterated some of them and expanded on some of them. And Bob Donovan was saying, hey, you know, we, we need to put the, the brakes on this. Can't we find somebody else? Well, yesterday, the Fire and Police Commission got their new member. The Common Council pulled this thing out of committee and by a vote of 10 to 5 uh, approved the placement of Everett Cockroft on the Fire and Police Commission. So now that you have somebody who has made some very, very decidedly anti-police officer statements, he's now on the Fire and Police Commission. And look, maybe he's going to turn out to be a wonderful commissioner. I, I don't know. But you do have to wonder, you know, given all the problems that are going on in Milwaukee and given all the dysfunction they've had on so many different departments and given the universe of people that might be out there willing to serve, is this really the best that Tom Barrett could do? Really? 235, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ 2018 marks the 13th year of Kids to Kids Christmas from Capco Metal Stamping and WTMJ. In that time, we've given away nearly 200,000 toys to kids in need. To find out where you can drop off a toy or make a donation, head to WTMJ.com now. And don't forget that this Friday, we will be live at VMP Healthcare and Community Living in Milwaukee. Stop by from noon until 6 to help us spread the holiday cheer. Look forward to seeing you there. Tonight, if you are out at a taste of Washington County at the Washington County Fairgrounds, big fundraiser for the Boys and Girls Club. Um, Find me. I'm going to be serving ribs. I'm going to be the guy that's going to be going to be like knee deep in barbecue sauce or something. But I'm going to be serving ribs out there. It's a wonderful event, and I'm very, very glad to do stuff to support this outstanding charity. Okay, it's called dibs, D-I-B-S, and it is a huge, huge issue in Chicago. Maybe it should be an issue here as well. Chicago got whumped with snow last week. That um, I guess you got if you were in Kenosha, you got hit. Further north, for example, we we got very little snow, but Chicago got hit. Chicago has an unwritten rule. It, it is not authorized by law, but it's called it's called dibs. And the idea is, let's say you park in front of your house. You, you don't have off street parking. You park in front of your house or your apartment building or whatever. And the idea is it snows. The snow plow comes through, but it hasn't cleared out the parking spaces. Or if it has, it's pushed all the snow into the area by the curb where people would park, right? So the idea of dibs is somebody goes out and they shovel out a space for their car, right? Then, so what happens, all right, you, you're the ones that shoveled out that space for your car. 
But then, you know, you're, you're going to drive your car to work, right? So the question becomes, by the virtue of the fact that you have shoveled out that space, do you have dibs on that space? And, again, the unwritten rule that you have in Chicago is that if you shovel out the space, what will happen is people will come in, and and if you, you've done it, what the person who shoveled it out then does is you take – some piece of crummy furniture like a, a chair or a folding chair or a cone or whatever, and you put it in that space. And the idea is because you have cleaned out this space, you now have dibs on that space moving forward. And what that means is somebody else, you can go to work, somebody else comes along, they're not supposed to move your, your chair and park on the side of the street because you have dibs on that spot because you shoveled it out. Now I bring this up because Chicago's going through a mayor we're going to be going through a mayoral election. Rahm Emanuel is is stepping down. And so one of the issues that, that's that's arisen is how do the people who are running for mayor feel about the whole notion of of dibs? You know, do you believe would you outlaw this? Would you say that no, it's a public space and merely by virtue of the fact that you shoveled it out doesn't give you the right to put stuff in there to save it. It's a variation of the issue that we talk about during the summer where people go out before the 4th of July parades or whatever and they try to reserve space. But I am intrigued as to how you feel about this. Our number, 414-799-1620. You've got the snow on the curb, right? You go out, you shovel out the space. Does that give you the exclusive right to park in that space since you've got your sweat equity? I mean, you, you're the one that's cleared it out. People wouldn't be able to park in it otherwise. Does that give you the right to stay there? And if you decide that you want to reserve it by, again, putting out a chair or whatever, does that mean it should be yours? Or, hey, it's a public street. Anybody can park there. Yes, you've cleaned it out. You parked there. But once you left, you've lost the right to do it. Where are you on dibs? And I, I bring this up because big story in the Chicago Tribune. They're asking all the different mayoral candidates. Seriously, where are you on dibs? And some of them are willing to take a stand. Others are saying, no, 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 no. I don't want to get down this. One guy says, oh, you mean oh, I'm, I'm, got, I'm not going to answer you know that question? 414-799-1620. Um, that's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Okay, where do you come down on this? Is the fact that you cleared out the space... Should that be enough to make it yours? And I guess the question would be, I don't know, for how long? Is it yours till the next snowfall? What's the deal? Let's start with Dean in Hales Corners. Dean, you're first. Good afternoon. Hey, Jeff. I I lived in Chicago in the early 90s, and this was really a common practice in Wrigleyville, in and around Wrigley Field. And my neighbor, and and, and it was never a problem until a fight broke out. And then the cops got called, and then... Both people got arrested and taken away. Right. And people kind of realized, hey, this is kind of a stupid thing to fight about. Or to get arrested give, over. <laughs> yeah, just give, right, just give respect to somebody else who did the work and effort. Well, this happened to my neighbor who across the street calmly shoveled in sub-zero weather all the way down to the asphalt. So we had, because there's parking so tight there, plows can't come through. So it was just packed snow on top of snow. Well, he shoveled all the way on the ground, got this nice clean spot, went to get his car. Some other guy came in. It was a, I must say it was a BMW, like a five series, 
pulled in with his pristine car. The guy came back and said, hey, I just shoveled that out. The guy replied, hey, thanks very much. And he walked away. <laughs> yeah. Well, then my neighbor went, parked his car back where he was, three or four blocks away, came back. You didn't see him for a second, but he came out with his garden hose. He proceeded <laughs> to mist down this guy's car for about a half hour. He put at least three inches of ice all over this guy's car. <laughs> When he came back, the screaming and yelling, of course, proceeded, and the guy's like, whoa, nobody saw a thing. That was the best part. When the police came around, nobody saw a thing. The tow truck had to yank this guy's car sideways. It tore the rubber off the rims, and they had to flatbed it out. Now, that's revenge. So the neighbor, and it's, But the neighbors were with, were with, was with the guy that shoveled out the parking space, because nobody was exactly. going to dime him out. Got exactly. it. Exactly. Thanks for the call. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I can understand, boy, you, you know, you're spending 45 minutes in sub-zero weather. You're clearing out the space. Then you go to move your car in and somebody's taking it right away. I could understand why that would have some bad feelings. But what should the rules be? I mean, if you do the work, does that mean you're entitled to it? And for how long? Bob in Greenfield. Bob, you're on WTMJ. What do you think? Hi, Jeff. Uh, I lived in Chicago for 25 years and I had an apartment down uh, near the lake for a while. And it's kind of like the unwritten rule, but I'd say I'm for it because only because, um, you know, like right. in the first place, your car is in the spot. That's why you're able to um, dig it out, you know, but there's a parking is always tight. You know, it's kind of like you have a car. If you want a spot, you just don't use it. Right. So it's, it's, it's really kind of, it is what it is. Uh, How long uh, do you think that should entitle you? Okay. So there's, there, there's a snowstorm on, on Sunday night. You go out, you clear out the parking space, you've parked your car in there. Um, how long do you think you should have the right to that? I mean, for a day, for all winter, what, how does it work? You know, um, you see what people do is they put, like like you said, the, the crummy furniture right. out there. And I'm going to say, like, maybe a couple days. Okay. But, I mean, it, obviously, it's not legal to do that. Right. And obviously... Um, <laughs> You know, it's, they've got so many apartments down there. And oh yeah, no, this thing gets worse, right? No, okay, thanks. No, I mean, these are all. The, I mean, again, it's it's. See, what I think about what is so interesting to me about this is it, it kind of brings up the, this larger topic, and I'm kind of looking for some of the larger stories from time to time. But it's but it's how you get along. It's how we interact with each other. I will tell you, it, if I were if I were driving and I'm looking for a parking space and, and it's again, it's snowy conditions and I see a space and it's especially if it's, it's after a recent snowfall and somebody has cleared it out and they, they've got a chair in there. I, I'm not going to move that chair and park there. I, I'm just not because I, I know that they did that. Now, if, if it's a week later and they're trying to say, I'm going to reserve this parking space for the rest of the winter, that might be different. But at least for a day or two, I, I'm not. I'm not going to mess with that because I guess I'm willing to go along with that unwritten rule because I know if I was the guy that shoveled this thing out, I would think that I should have dibs on this. But but there is a debate here. Tony sends, says, I used to do that. I live on the south side of Milwaukee, and when they plow, they don't get close to the curb. And because I drive a bigger truck, I would clean out to the curb so my truck would not stick out. Um, I would mark the spot with shovels and cones. Tell the Milwaukee police came and threatened to ticket me for doing this. Uh, let's see. Andy says, I've never lived in Chicago, thank God, but this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. I have, I, 
if whoever lived, whenever lives on the east side and it is, you have to move to somewhere, it doesn't snow. I wonder what the city does with all the new furniture when they clean it up, when people don't pick up their stuff. Well, that's always an issue that's there as well. All right, another text. No dibs. First come, first serve. On that train of thought, then can I go cut grass in a city park and then put up a shed there because I called dibs? Well, a little bit different. 414-799-1620. Wayne in Milwaukee. Hi, Wayne. Yes, hi. What do you think? I think that, you know, if you don't use it, you lose it. I don't care if you shovel it. It's a city street. It's public. And, you know, if you're not in it, well, someone else is going to go in it. And that's just what it's there for at the park. So if you, all right, let's say you're driving along. You're looking for a space to park. It's 12 hours after snowstorm. You see this empty spot that's there, but it's got a couple chairs in it. You're going to get out and move the chairs and put your car in there? You're darn right I am. Them <laughs> chairs don't belong there. Okay, the and as a matter of fact, that, you know, you actually, it's, it's, you can't put that there. You can call the cops. They'll get a ticket for putting it there. Uh-huh. Sure. Okay, I grew up on the south side of Milwaukee, and I know what you're talking about. It, it's hard. There was times I had to park four or five blocks away because of the snow. But you know what? That's just the way it is. You choose to live there. Either you have a garage, a parking spot. But if you don't use it, somebody else is going to. Mm-hmm. All right. Good enough. Thanks to call. We're not going to settle this. We're not going to settle this. But the... <laughs> What is interesting is this concept, and so why I bring it up, dibs has now become an issue in the mayoral race in Chicago. Do you support it? Do you not support it? Um, people will have to decide for themselves. It's 247, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Hey, buddy, get out of my spot. 249, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. New bumper music, huh, crew? All right. Did you pick this out? I love it. Long, cool woman in a black dress. This takes me back. Absolutely. You feel free to play this five times a day. Well, maybe not quite that much, but absolutely love it. All right. There are good ideas and there are bad ideas. There are Republican ideas. There are Democrat ideas. This is an example of a Republican idea that is staggeringly bad. I I encourage I encourage my friends in the state legislature to not get sucked into this. We talked about it last week, but apparently it's still on the table. All right, in 2020, there is going to be a race for the Supreme Court. There's one next year as well. But one of the Supreme Court justices, a guy who's been, he's appeared at Insight on the Insight Show, uh, Dan Kelly. He is up, he's a conservative justice. He's doing a great job, by the way. Deserves to be reelected. He's, he is running for election in April of 2020. Now, the way it stands now, Follow me on this. In April of 2020, you are going to have a primary for the nonpartisan races across the state. That's going to be in February. So nonpartisan races are going to be like the mayors and the common council and for the judges and things like that. There's going to be a primary in February, and then there's going to be the general election in April. Got it? So you've got two races that are scheduled. One of the other things that is on the the docket for 2020 is there will be the presidential primary. And the way it stands now is you're going to have, you know, there'll be the presidential primary for Republicans and for Democrats. That is scheduled to be on the same day as the general election in April. So that's when there'll be the final elections for the contested mayoral, mayoral races and judge races and the state Supreme Court justice. Some Republicans in the legislature, and we got this lame duck legislature now, 
before Tony Evers takes over. What they are thinking is, hey, we want to make it we want to make it easier for Dan Kelly, the conservative justice, to get elected. So we are concerned that in April of 2020, you're going to have a contested Democrat primary. And if Donald Trump runs again, he's probably going to run unopposed. So the contested Democrat primary is going to lead to a, an increased turnout of Democrats who will be more likely to vote for a liberal Supreme Court candidate. So one of the things the Republicans are considering doing is moving the presidential primary from April up to sometime in March, essentially adding a third election, in one in February, one in March, one in April. All right. And, and the only reason to do that, candidly, is to try to, I don't know, maybe suppress the, the Democrat turnout for the nonpartisan primary in April. Okay, the problem, of course, there's a number of problems with this, but one of the biggest ones is to add a third election day to now move the presidential primary from March, from April into March, that would, that would require the expenditure of maybe millions of dollars. Because running elections are extremely costly. The clerk of courts would have to get volunteers, bring these people in all over the state to have this on a separate day. Look, I, I hope Dan Kelly wins re-election in April 2020. I can't imagine not supporting him. I think he's done a great job. But to do this, to cost the taxpayers millions of dollars to try to engineer and try to rig something to make it more likely for that to happen, I think, number one, that is fundamentally wrong. And number two... It's going to backfire. It's just, it is going to backfire because as we get closer to that election, if the Republicans do that in 2018, I guarantee you this is going to be a dominant issue in that Supreme Court race. We're not going to be talking about the merits of Justice Kelly versus whoever's put up or against him. We're going to be talking about how, gee, you had Republicans back in 2018 who gamed the system to try to grease the skids for this particular race. It's an issue that's going to have a huge blowback. It's simply not worth it. I understand. I understand the political calculus. Believe me, I get all that stuff, but I'm telling you it's not worth it. And just from the perspective of anybody who likes to think of themselves as a prudent steward of, of taxpayer money, to, to spend millions of dollars to have an election in March when you can have that election in April, well, it's just, especially if you think it's going to gain you some, only the purpose is to gain some uh, some political points or make it more likely for your candidate to win, that almost, almost never works. This is not an idea whose time has come, and I hope anybody who's thinking about it out in Madison now decides, let's just let this one go. 254, this is Jeff Wagner. When we come back, we'll find out what John Mercure has on his mind. Stick around.